Hi, I'm Martina McBride. You know, I've known these shady ladies for a very long time, and I love to hear their stories. But you have to take them with a grain of salt. Now, these tales and opinions are not for the faint of heart, and this podcast is not suitable for children. But then, neither is the music business. (laughs) So light one up and lighten up, because you're listening to the Shady Ladies of Music City. Is this on? Are we doing it now? What are we saying again? I'm Evelyn. And I'm Susan. Some people refer to us as... The Shady Ladies of Music City. Today, the Shady Ladies of Music City have the pleasure of talking with one of the most important and awarded women in the music business, Connie Bradley. She was the head of ASCAP for decades and was instrumental in the careers of countless superstars. Unfortunately, we are heartbroken that Connie passed shortly after we taped this episode. She was a fierce force wrapped in Southern charm who did more for songwriters and her community than anyone realizes. She was instrumental in the growth and development of Nashville as a music center, and she was one of the few women in the room when the decisions were being made. I was the second woman to come on the CNMA board, Country Music Association board, ever. So that wasn't an easy thing to do because the first woman really didn't want to give up the position of being the only woman. She really didn't want any female on the board except her, and she certainly didn't want the competitor on the board. But at the time, Hal David, who was chairman and president of ASCAP, was on the Country Music Association board, and he lives in, uh, lived in New York and L.A. and knew nothing about uh, country music, so he uh, resigned his position and asked that I be put on. So that's how I got He was on. a big songwriter. Yes, he he was uh, uh, with the the duo um, uh, Bacharach and David, and Hal was the lyricist of the bunch, and um, uh, Bert Bacharach wrote the melodies. He like on raindrops keep falling on my head. Hal wrote all the lyrics, and then um, Bert wrote da 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 da. da. So right. he, you know, they they wrote. Many, 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 many hits together. How did you end up at ASCAP, Connie? I started, I was working at ASCAP. No, I was working at RCA Records as an executive secretary. And for? At the time, for Jerry Bradley. Uh And at the time. Oh, your husband. Right. Um, One of those kind of things. One of those office romances. Um. But at the time, uh, the head of ASCAP was Ed Shea, and he used to come down to, to RCA, and he'd come in and uh, talk, so I got to know him pretty well. And Ed said that they were looking for a female membership rep, and would I be interested? I was interested, and we talked, and there had never been a membership rep female in ASCAP period, New York, L.A., or anywhere else. So I took the job, and uh, that's how I started working at ASCAP, and that was in 1976. So um, 
as time went on, we got a new chairman of the board and president, and his name was Hal David. So Hal came in and talked to, to me, and and I was the youngest hiree on the staff, and all the other membership reps were uh, men. And Hal came in and talked to me, and he wanted me to run ASCAP in Nashville. I think the job title was... You're kidding, that was, quickly? Uh, four years later. I mean, later. how did you know what to do? <clears throat> I didn't. Well, it was four years so, later. Yeah, four years later. and uh, But I still didn't know what to do. So I told him, no, I w was not interested. I told Hal I wasn't interested because I would. I just didn't feel like I knew enough to do that. Plus, it's it was a very political job. And I told him, I said, I don't know the mayor, the governor, councilman, or anybody else. <clears throat> and I'm not good at telling people they're great at something when they're not. I just It's just not me, so I know I can't do it. So he said, well, I'll tell you what, I think you can. So let's try it. And if you don't like it in six months, we'll look at something else. And he basically, he would not take no for an answer. So I told him that, you know, he I didn't tell him anything. He told me I was going to do it. So I reluctantly agreed to do it. I wanted to say that, Con that, that Connie and Donna Hilly, we're sort of like, you know, me and Susan, or I should say me and Susan were sort of like Donna and, and Connie in that That's right. when you saw one, you saw the other. And um, I knew Donna a little bit better than Connie, uh, but I got to know Connie pretty well when I, too, uh, joined the, uh, the Country Music Association board. And I didn't really know you that well then, Connie, but I remember walking into the room and being terrified because I had had a big fight with Irving Waugh the night before. And on the front page of the Tennessean, it said that, I said that the CMA treated artists like shit. And I walked into the room and everybody's looking at me. And Donna and Well, you and better Connie tell who came. Irving Waugh was. Well, he directed the CMA show at the time and he was a very big deal with the CMA. And um, I walked into the room and everybody sort of looked at me and I never realized how big the CMA board was. I thought it was maybe like 15 people. And I walk in and there's this huge room full of people. And they're all looking at me. And Donna and uh, Connie came over and welcomed me. And Donna said, oh, it's so exciting. It's the first time the CMA show was mentioned on the front page of the paper. <laughs> and <laughs> That's right. I the good thing came them. out of it. <laughs> I sat with them. And, you know, the board meeting that day was pretty tense for me at the beginning, but I felt so supported, you know, because Connie and um, uh, Donna, you know, so kind of took the heat off of it and let me sit with them and, and kind of supported me. So I always, always appreciated that. And I just wanted to well, say Well, you know, that, what you uh, said was, what you said, though, was there was a lot of truth in it. And I think a lot of people thought it, they just didn't have the guts to say it. Well, the CMA and the show controlled the artists. The artists were like That's beholden right. to these people. And you remember, we used to, I never used to understand why poor Tammy Wynette acted like, you know, the, the label was her uh, teacher, her father. 
it, it was just unbelievable. And they, the artists held all the power, but the labels and the CMA board acted like they had all the power. The artists had to tiptoe around them because they didn't want their label to not get them on the show because right. your sales would go, years ago, your sales would go up really high if you were on the CMA Awards show. So that's why uh, everybody was so beholding to CMA because there wasn't that much video back then. There weren't that many places that you could be seen on television. And television played a big role in record sales. I remember the first ASCAP dinner I went to, which is was always at the uh, uh, Opryland Hotel. And I remember how beautiful it was, Connie. You just did such a great job of making it, you know, feel intimate, and, and yet it was so large. But I remember I was in that cocktail room you had on the side for all of the... Uh, you know, artists and the writers to kind of have a bit of privacy uh, for cocktails. And there were a lot of people in the room. And I remember I had my back to the uh, opening and the room became very still. And I realized that something had happened and I turned around and Johnny Cash walked in. He was a mighty man and he was respect. He was one of the few male artists that was respected by everybody and almost all generations and all genres of music. And it wasn't just country. I mean, Johnny had a big name. And I know how much, you know, Don and you helped groom so many people to, you know, function in, in the music business during those times. Well, like Kenny Chesney, Alan Jackson, Garth Brooks, all the artists that you helped to mentor. Well, we, we had... Donna and I worked together. If I signed somebody that I thought was really going to be something, be a name, I'd call Donna and tell her, and vice versa. She called me one morning and said, I just signed a group of three boys, and they're the cutest things you've ever seen, and they're really good, and we're going to lunch, so why don't you go to lunch with us and sign them? So I said, well, okay, I'll cancel what I've got. What's their names? And she said, Rascal Flats. Well, I'd never heard of them either. So we went to lunch, and um, I signed um, two of them. I signed Gary uh, LaVox and not Jay, but um, Don. And uh, Jay decided he'd sign with BMI, and they would compare statements. So, but we, we worked together, and... I know we talked every day, whether we were in town or out of town. And we one day Donna called me and she said, have a speakerphone put in your bathroom, dressing room. <laughs> I said, okay, why? She said, that way we can talk while we're putting our makeup on. So every morning we start talking about, you know, about the what was going on that day, who she was seeing, who I was seeing, our problems, our woes. Uh, you know, me working for basically New York people, and she had some New York people that she worked for also. So we'd talk about all that. And um, one morning I hear all this splashing of water. Well, she's in the bathtub. And we're talking on the phone about the music business and what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. But that was always funny. 
But, you know, those talks made us both a lot of money. And during that time, when there weren't so many women around, you know, there was... It wasn't that you needed another woman, but it was just made it much more pleasant to have somebody that you could compare notes with, that you could travel with. I mean, as you're talking about being on the CMA board, you know, you and one other woman and like, you know, 30 guys or something going to different cities and doing things. So I always found, you know, certainly in our my business relationship with Susan, we talked every morning, too, as we got ready to go to work. Even though we were going to see each other in the same office, we still talked every morning before we left the right. house, just in terms of how the day was going to be and what we were doing. We talked about hair and clothes and shoes and makeup, along with business, too. <laughs> so we just talked about everything. But that so, was a big help. Who were, some of the most, who were some of the artists that you really felt strongly about signing and, and you know, what you know, I mean, and during the different eras of time, too, you know, who did you really get into, well, Connie? Well, um, you know, we signed, of course, Kenny Chesney, who turned out to be a very special friend. And uh, he was BMI in the beginning, but through my uh, friendship with his manager, Clint Hyam, we, uh, we got Kenny to switch over. And we signed Garth Brooks and Reba, George Strait, Alan Jackson, Dirks Bentley, and then more recently, uh, Chris Stapleton, Leanne Rhymes, Tricia Yearwood, Winona. Uh, you know, we, 1989 forward was our heyday. Before 1989, we didn't really have that many artists because they all had signed elsewhere. But um, ASCAP started paying really good, and mostly our our payments were competitive but between ASCAP and BMI. They were pretty competitive. And then we came up with uh, some good ways to help market them, and we did a luncheon at the Country Radio Seminar, and I know one of our luncheons we always showcase some new artists that they had not seen to help try to break the artist. Well, one year, our showcase to the radio broadcasters was um, Garth Brooks and Alan Jackson. They wow. both had some radio airplay, but the radio people had really not ever seen them. Uh, I'm not even sure if they'd even had a number one song at the time. But we went to uh, Garth and, well, Bob Doyle, who had worked at ASCAP as a membership rep, met Garth and then left and went with Garth He was as his, his manager. Management. Bob Doyle was his manager. Right. Was his manager. And we also had another guy. His name was Rusty Jones, who ha had a law degree but worked at ASCAP. And Rusty left and went with Garth to be his, his attorney. So they both came out smelling like a rose, and uh, the the combination of the three, you know, have gone on to make millions and millions, and it worked. So they're still his. They're still with Garth. They're still doing basically the same things, but um, we had no idea what we had signed when we signed Garth. We knew he was good. We knew he was, you know, was was going to have number one songs. But we didn't know that he was going to turn into a monster. 
Well, I don't think he knew it either. Or, nor, nor he any was very others. loyal to his people, just like a Kenny. And still is. And it's funny because Evelyn and I have talked about Clint on numerous podcasts with various people, including Clint. You know, Kenny and Clint right. have been together for years. Going back to Donna, Donna signed a, a lot of artists, um, and and she would artists that were artists and songwriters too, and she'd call me and and uh, we'd talk about it. And I know one day she called and she said, you know, uh, at this time it was Sony ATV Publishing. We've got the the um, publishing for the beat for the Beatles, and she said. Um, I don't know if BMI's paying us what we should fairly get or not. And I told her, I said, well, I can have a performance run done on their songs because ASCAP would monitor all songs, not just ASCAP songs, but all songs. And they, would, they had a way of finding out how much airplay they were getting, radio, television primarily, so we did a performance run on their catalog. And at the time, the catalog, part of it was owned by Michael Jackson and part of it was owned by Sony. So we did a performance run. And as it turned out, ASCAP would have paid drastically more money for the Beatles catalog than right. BMI was. Well, we kept it very secret. Only four people knew what was going on. That evidently, it was, it was John Eastman and then his son. And his son was on the ASCAP board. And um, so we were able to come up and with a, something, I'm not going to say what it was, but with something that made them very happy. And before BMI knew it, we had switched the whole catalog over to ASCAP which was a gigantic no, coup. And they never knew what happened or who did it. But it was really little, you know, little old country, me and Donna. We were the huh. ones that put that whole thing together, and it worked. And that was a big coup for ASCAP. And, there's, and the catalog is still there today. But just little conversations, you know, on in the mornings, that came up from a morning conversation. She was just saying things like, I don't know if we're making enough money. And I said, well, I can run a performance run on it and see what you would have earned had it been at ASCAP. And we didn't think anything was going to happen either, but it did. So little things matter. Wow. what That's a great story. Who who would have known that? It is. I didn't know that. And I remember how, <laughs> how Connie and, and Donna would, you know, lobby for different artists and, and different songs and different causes all through the business. I mean, all the label heads that you two used to, you know, just wear down in terms of, you know, getting priorities shifted and, and getting those performance spots on uh, the CMA show. I mean, you and mm -hmm. Donna were so um, important for, you know, support of the artists with the label heads because everybody was just like kind of covering their own people and their own cause. And even though you and Donna were doing that from, you know, publishing uh, point of view, you were very fair well, about, it, you know, acknowledging 
who should be But nobody ever told you that you should be getting more money. Well, you know, the biz in the business, we found out that if record labels, publishing companies, and performing rights work together, we could get things done. And everybody trying to work for themselves really got nothing done. And we were able to help the record labels financially with things they wanted to do. And, of course, the publishers were able to add money to the kitty financially. So uh, artists got the benefit of us three working together. Yeah. Then, you know, Connie also married into the Bradley family, which, you know, is a great music uh, biz dynasty here in Nashville. And uh, your husband, Jerry, was, of course, the head of um, RCA at one time. Did Jerry and did the, did the family, you know, encourage you in, in terms of making deals or seeing what different opportunities were? Or did you just pretty much keep everything separate? Uh, everything was separate. When, you know, whenever I came home or Jerry came home, we didn't talk about the music business because Owen Bradley, who is the uh, the head of all the Bradleys, he had a daughter that worked at BMI. Then he had a grandson that worked at BMI, and then I was at ASCAP. So we never oh, talked my... about the business. That's really funny. I... I didn't realize that, that, you know, you would have that issue, I guess, yeah. if it was an issue. I remember once being at a Bradley barn for a recording session and somehow ended up sitting with Owen in his office, and he just told me the most wonderful stories. I mean, I was... I was, that's one of the highlights, I think, of my professional career was getting to sit with him that day and hearing his stories and how nice he was. Well, he, he actually, I think that the RCA had a guy, I can't think of his name right now, out of New York that was kind of working with the artists here in Nashville. Um, but Owen was really the first one that opened an active office and went out and found people, like you said, like Loretta and Brenda Lee and, uh, you know, Patsy. people like that. Patsy Klein. Owen cut all the hits on those women. And um, he, he just, he was a musician. He could play most anything. And if you look at, if you listen to his productions that were, done over 50 years ago, they're still just as current today as they were then. As a matter of fact, the Patsy Cline uh, st still has the number one jukebox um, song with... Uh, uh, crazy? Crazy. Crazy. Thank I, you. Yeah. That's, I... that's, still, that's still the number one jukebox song. How do you find retirement, Connie? Do you still dabble in it? I mean, do you go for meetings? Are you still on the boards of all these organizations? No, no. I, I stayed on the boards for about a year, and all of a sudden I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. Because if you're not in the day-to-day -day, um, run of the business, you know, you, you don't know what's going on. So I resigned yeah. from the boards, and I I worked for ASCAP for... 36 years, and I ran it uh, for a good portion of it, and, uh, you know, you they always said, you'll know when you're ready to go, and I did. 
all of a sudden one day I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. And I have not, I have not regretted it. I've not been bored or bored. anything. As a matter of fact, I need to quit doing a lot of things that I'm doing now. We just got through doing, well, going back to Donna, because you can't talk about me without talking about Donna. But back about, I think it was 18 years ago, I went to St. Thomas Hospital to get a uh, ah. uh, my breast examination and um, mammogram. So I had seen on TV that morning on uh, one of the national networks, probably ABC, and they said, you know, now there's a new machine called Digital Mammogram Machine, and it's five, it, it, it discovers anything wrong about five years ahead of the, of, of the mammogram that they're using today. So when you go to get a mammogram, tell them that you want the digital mammogram. So I go into St. Thomas, and I said, oh, by the way, I want a digital mammogram. And they said, well, I'm sorry, but we don't have that. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, and they said, the only digital mammogram in the state of Tennessee is in Memphis. And I said, that's the only one? And they said, yes. And I said, well, how, you know, with Nashville being the medical center of the, of the, war, of the United States, almost, outside of New York and a few other places, how could you not have it? In Memphis, have it. There's no, you know, there, there. I, I just didn't realize that Memphis was known for medicine, and I don't know how Memphis got it. But anyway, I left and I go back to the office, and I called Donna and I said, Donna, did you know that there's a digital mammogram, and that the only one in the state of Tennessee in Memphis? She said, No, I didn't know that. And I said, I'm going to go back to St. Thomas and see if we can raise the money, will they buy one? Because I hate for Nashville not to have one. She said, no, let's do it. So I go back to St. Thomas. And I said, okay, Donna and I are going to put together a concert, and we are going to raise money to get a digital mammogram for Nashville. And they said, okay, whatever you earn, we will match it. So we put together... Uh, an event that we held once a year and still do called Rock. Right back then, it was called Rock the Barn. And Donna, you know, was really good friends with Brooks and Dunn. So she called Ronnie Dunn and said, hey, we want to do a concert. Will you let us do it at your farm and in your barn? And he said, sure, come on. So the first year we did, we had kind of medium known artists, not really big like Kenny Chesney and Brooks and Dunn and Rascal Flats. And we pulled in all of the the artists that we knew, and we did it acoustic. And we made about $90,000 that year. And we had about five 600 people show up. Well, as it turned out, it became one of the great events of the year because, number one, you got to go to Ronnie Dunn's house. And that was a, a a hot ticket, and we only charged a hundred dollars a ticket, and then we had people that would be our sponsors. So we can the third year we had raised enough money to get the uh, digital mammogram. So St. Thomas 
not only bought one for St. Thomas Hospital, they had bought the Baptist Hospital, and they bought and they uh, put one in Baptist Hospital and St. Thomas Hospital, St. Thomas West. So that was the first digital mammograms available in Nashville. And then, you know, like most competitors, one that year went along to Vanderbilt. Of course, had to put them in. But we were real proud of the of the fact that we could call on our fellow songwriters and artists and put together an event every year. And the last one that we had called Rock the Cradle, I mean Rock the Barn, we had over 800 people. And it was, I mean, it was huge. And most of these people were industry people because we didn't open it up to the public because Ronnie really didn't want the public. Um, at his house. <laughs> right, at his house, you're right. So then Donna got sick, and we the next year we didn't do anything because I didn't want to do it without Donna. And then uh, the next year, St. Thomas came back to me and said, "Would y'all con- would y'all consider about a doing one? Since we've got the mammogram machines now, would you all consider doing one for uh, to subsidize?" the neonatal unit at the hospital because we have so many people that come in that don't have insurance, don't have money, have babies. They're sick babies. They can't afford to put them into the the ICU facility where they need to go. And there's a lot of equipment we don't have that if we could buy, it would mean everything to the life of a newborn baby. So I said, okay, I don't like doing it without Donna, but I guess we can try it and see. So we started, we changed the name of it to Rock the Cradle. And this year would be the first year we haven't done one, but we did a virtual Rock the Cradle. And um, we got uh, Carly Pierce and uh, Shane McAnally, who's the hottest songwriter, one of the hottest songwriter producers on Music Row, and Josh Osborne to come into a studio at uh, at 100 Oaks, I mean, not 100 Oaks, uh, Cool Springs. And we did a virtual there, and they did an in the round. And it turned out to be fantastic. So we're still going with Rock the Cradle, and it all started with, with Donna and I. That's really a great story, Connie. I mean, I know you miss her, Connie. I guess we should say that Donna passed away. Yes, she did, and uh, that was a big loss to the music industry. As a matter of fact, the music industry hasn't been the same since. Because one thing that Donna had that a lot of people don't have in the music industry is she had the love of the songs, the people, the songwriters. She didn't look at them just as dollar signs and money. She she put so many children through school that would ne- that who knows what would have happened had she not been there to do that. And she's the most giving woman that I've ever met in my entire life. I learned a lot from her because she she just trusted everybody. She had a big three-story house over near Music Row. She never locked her doors, and if a songwriter 
came from out of town that she really didn't know, didn't have a place to stay. She'd let them stay at her house. And I kept telling her, Donna, you're nuts. One of these crazies are going to, you know, they could they could kill you because you just let them come and go and you leave your back door open. She just said, she just laughed and said, no, God will take care of me. And he did. She was wonderful that way. She'd walk into a room and start laughing and people like immediately knew she was there and you felt like, oh, good, you know, you would, you would be really happy to see her because, you know, she just always sort of was bubbling with, you know, joy and laughter and, you know. And she was always happy to see you. And and she was. She was happy for people that, that got ahead. And uh, she just, you know, there's, there's nobody, there's never been anybody in the music business like that. And I don't think there ever will be. Well, I guess we want to thank you, Connie, for all of your time and great stories and insight, you know. I think that you've really, you know, given us some uh, great material. And uh, I, I, again, want to say how grateful I am to you and to, you know, Donna for making my life a lot easier in Nashville when I arrived. So thank you. And mine, too. Well, and how much I learned from this podcast, Connie, things I never knew before, that I really appreciate you opening up and being so forthcoming with us you know we love you and you know it's going to be a sad year because we can't have our annual lunch with clint i because of oh, covid i know it i know it i mean it's just uh i can't wait for things to open back up and i can't can't wait to see what changes will be made in the music industry uh because a it's lot. definitely affected it's definitely affected everybody and you know financially the most of some of the artists can 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 stand having a year off but there are a lot of artists that can't but thank you so much connie and you know we love you and send our love to jerry well we'll talk to you soon connie thanks thanks for listening you be sure to subscribe and we'll be sure to catch you off guard so light one up and lighten up share and tell your friends then rate, review, and subscribe. Don't be quiet about this. We need you to tell everyone because why is someone going to listen to this? No one has any idea who that we are. So it's up to you to get us known. It has to be a viral thing. It has to be a uh, you know word of mouth thing because we're putting our faith in your hands. We are. For more information on the podcast, please visit www.shadyladiesofmusiccity.com. Shady Ladies of Music City is recorded and produced in Nashville, Tennessee, and is presented by Monument Records. Executive producers are Jason Owen, Shane McAnally, and Katie McCartney. Our producer is Joel Beaver. Our theme song is written and performed by Robert Schaefer's he is also our engineer and editor.